And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. Uh, my name is Conor Matchett, I'm political correspondent at The Scotsman and with me as always to talk through the latest week and the week coming in Scottish politics and the wider UK world of politics are Alistair Grant, our political editor and our Westminster correspondent Alex Brown. Good morning to you both. So much has changed over the weekend. Uh, Boris Johnson is gone as prime. Oh wait, no, nothing's changed. He's still there and uh, everything is as it was. Um, how are we both doing this morning? Good, yeah. That's that. <laughs> Just buzzing to be here on another day when very little has changed in the UK government. There's a new head of communications. He's brought in some mineral water and some healthy sweets. <laughs> this is a new a new dawn has broken, has it not? <laughs> well, 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 we'll touch on Partygate later on. Um, I think we've done it for the last three weeks, but we'll, we'll 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 deal with it in slightly less detail later on. There's been a couple of big rows in uh, Holyrood and uh, the wider the wider Scottish politics circle. Alistair, I'm going to ask you a terrible question, but there's been a lot of talk about pensions and uh, how they will work in an independent Scotland. Uh, Ian Blackford kind of broke SNP cover almost by deciding to talk about it on a podcast with Drew Hendry and then ended up repeating it all with um, ITV Border. Can you take us through why it's caused the SNP some issues, what the position is, what the uh, better together, if you like, position is and how we sit? Uh, essentially, this is the, the kind of question of which government would be liable for state pensions after Scotland becomes independent. And Ian Blackford, as you said, on a podcast and later to in a kind of broadcast interview, was essentially saying the UK government would have, I think what he called an obligation to make contributions to people's pensions. So this came up again at FMQs and then with Nicola Sturgeon talking about it. And then after FMQs, uh, Nicola Sturgeon's spokesman in a briefing to journalists kind of clarified the position a bit more and was essentially saying that in an independent Scotland, the Scottish government would be you know, responsible for paying pensions, but the cost would partly be met by the historic contributions that people have made to their uh, national insurance contributions. So the kind of amount they'd paid into what, what I think he called the kind of pensions pot, the UK pensions pot, pre-independence. Now, this obviously caused a lot of controversy. It's an issue that comes up every so often in the independence debate, kind of ties into kind of greater concerns about the impact of independence on your on, on your kind of pocket, your income, your your standard of living, all these kind of things. I think for anyone who's interested in this, I would really recommend reading a piece that was written over the weekend by the Fraser of Allender, 
the Economic Research Institute attached to Strathclyde University, which explains this in quite you know, easy to understand terms while making it clear that basically on both sides of the debate, so on the SP side and on the kind of pro-union side, um, there's maybe people are not quite saying the whole truth or, you know, kind of there's a lot of kind of political game playing going on. So the, the Fraser Valander Institute basically says that, you know, state pensions are not paid from a pot that people kind of build up during the course of their lives. They are kind of paid using money from today's taxes and borrowing. So they're a kind of pay-as-you-go scheme, I think is a phrase that Fraser Valander used. However, the UK government does pay state pensions to those who retire abroad, um, provided they have made sufficient national insurance contributions. So I think the truth is that, and this is what Fraser Valander essentially say, that this would be a matter of negotiations after independence. So the UK already has kind of social security agreements in place with other countries, kind of issues around pensions, I think with I had it with the EU. I think there's something else in place now after Brexit. Um, so essentially, it would just be it would be an issue that would have to be have to be ironed out after independence. And it would probably form part of much wider negotiations about lots of different things. It's incredibly complicated. It will be complicated, but it's not a straight yes no answer at the moment. I think does that explain things at all? I think I think given the minutes warning, I think that's a pretty good explanation of. Yeah. Big thanks to the Fraser Valander Institute for <laughs> supplying quite a lot of that answer. Okay, I'll buy it. What is a pension? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, uh, it's, it's it's an interesting one because it, it's it's caused. I mean, for for those people who are very online in the world of independent Scotland debate, there's a handful of figures who've jumped on this from the from the no side of the camp. People like the former. Better Together director Blair McDougall, people like Sam Taylor of these islands, and um, Kevin Haig as well. You know the, these these relatively well respected unionist you know points of view who've gone. This is a massive change in the SNP's point of view that you know previously they promised it, it would it would come all from the Scot- Scottish pot if you like or the Scottish budget, and it's now you know supposedly being paid by the English, which is on the face of it ridiculous. It's interesting that in the phrase of the piece you reference, Alistair, that, you know, unsurprisingly, I think they even use unambiguous, unambiguously, the cost of a pension, once everyone who ever lived in the UK, as in the old UK, is going to have to be met by the, Scot- by the independent Scottish government. That doesn't seem to have changed. And I do wonder if, you know, there's a little bit of revisionism in the SNP ongoing now, going, well, that's all we really meant in the first place in 2014 in the work in the white paper is that you know in the past we meant once everyone's independent and we're all past the point of contributing that's what we meant by we'll pay for it and um, th- the deeper question here is whether any of it really matters we talk about the 2014 referendum and you're thinking you know did people vote on independence in on these issues like pensions, like currency, and is that how how yes lost it? I think most people will probably argue yes. Alistair, do you think this is a real weak point for the SNP and the pro indie cause? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that definitely needs clarity, and I think it's something that will come up if there is a second independence referendum campaign. I mean, these issues are so important because if you think back to two thousand and fourteen, one of the issues that the SNP kind of tripped up on um, was just these kind of wider financial issues, issues around currency, basically issues that will affect people's standards of living, the kind of things they worry about when you're making such a, a kind of radical change to the constitutional position, starting a new country. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my family? What does that mean for 
my standard of living and my income and, you know, the things that allow me to live my life. So they are incredibly important. I think particularly if you're trying to persuade those those voters in the middle that we talked about before in this podcast, those voters that, you know, could go either way, they could vote yes, they could vote no. If you're trying to persuade them, you've got to come up with a, you know, a convincing, solid case for independence that answers a lot of these questions. And I think, you know, at the moment, I think, again, as we've discussed before in this podcast, the SNP haven't got that um, white paper for independence, an equivalent of that. They obviously set that out in 2013 before the 2014 referendum. They've talked about how they're kind of restarting the case for independence at the moment, coming up with this new prospectus. We haven't seen it yet. So there isn't any detail on their kind of updated plans for independence. And I think when that does come out, these issues have to be addressed head on. Yeah, they have to be answered to the satisfaction of those voters in the middle that they want to persuade. Guy Opperman, who's the pensions minister down down, down south in, in Westminster, said that the SNP were, quote, misleading Scots by arguing that the pensions will be paid by the UK. He said, you know, if Scotland chooses to become a foreign country, then working English, Welsh and Northern Irish taxpayers should not pay for a foreign country's pensions liabilities. That's been the settled position of the UK government since before the 2014 referendum. I wonder, Alex, if Brexit and the myriad promises made during the Brexit referendum and during the Brexit negotiations mean that voters in Scotland who are generally more pro-Remain than pro-Leave will look at something like this from a, from a UK government minister and go, well, he's talking out of his, his backside like they all did during Brexit. I think fundamentally we have to accept the pensions are both incredibly boring and this debate is incredibly insincere. Like, I am falling asleep even thinking about pensions and it just means nothing. It's just one of those things where Ian Blackford will say something, they haven't really thought it through, and then the UK government, I mean, it's Guy Oppmann's coming out. It's not even like, it's not, it's not like a huge name coming out and slapping them down and going, well, you know, it's not true. And sure, the whole Brexit thing means you can't trust the UK government but I'm sure our readers who've been following along know there's still a lot of many other reasons you can't trust the UK government. I don't think some, you know, Brexit or the, anyone talking about pensions is going to change anything. This debate is so silly because we're not even there yet. It's like they haven't. It's, it's like you're turning up with without an argument. You've got the you've got the skeleton of an argument. You've got the idea of something that you want, but then you haven't. You know when you have to do when you're at school, you have to do maths and said show you're working. No one is showing they're working. It's just saying something to make it seem like the other people are bad. I really struggle to think that anyone in here comes out looking well. It's like we can't, until we know the proper fiscal plans of anything or how independence would work, we don't really know. It's it's all well and good, the SNP saying, oh, we'll do this in independence. But it's going to take two to tango and no one is really talking about it like adults, aside from two of you, obviously. I have to say, I mean, I do agree with you that pensions are boring to think about in an abstract way, but I disagree in the sense that I think a lot of people will pay attention to this because it's maybe boring for you, Alex, because you're a young guy, you know, you're not approaching retirement, you know, you're not, this is, this is still very much an abstract issue for you. I've got many grey hairs. I get emails, <laughs> I get a thing through the post about a pension that I don't open, but I know it's there. Yeah, exactly. You don't open it. It's something that's at the back of your mind. And to be honest, you know, I'm kind of the same. I don't think about it a lot either. But, you know, for a lot of voters, it is a big issue and it is something that's going to be affecting their lives in the immediate future or, you know, a few years down the line. And if you're, if Nicola Sturgeon is saying that she wants to have a second referendum before the end of next year, you know, granted, most people in Scottish politics don't think that's going to happen. But if they're pushing for that kind of thing, then these are live issues. They do need to be kind of thrashed out and debated. 
but it is still you know there's not there is not much detail there it's not the pensions that. don't matter obviously it's going to affect, affect people but they're just saying things like any idea of what independence is yet it doesn't it doesn't really matter i know they're saying oh they'll english have to pay for it and then the uk government saying no but that doesn't it's not like there's a plan a fiscal plan for how independence would work to go well we will do this and you will do that it's it's not like the s&p have gone right when we have independence uk government you know the 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 withdrawal process we this will have to happen they've just said it's gonna oh you'll do that there's there's, there's not like there's no even negotiations about it so it it's not that it doesn't matter. It's not that you know the issue isn't important to people. It's that <laughs> the SFP saying it doesn't really mean anything at this stage. No, what anyone says about this issue means nothing at this stage other than an intent. But is, is it not, I mean, this might be a bit of an understatement, but is it not slightly worrying that one of the most senior figures in the SNP can't pull together a coherent policy on pensions when supposedly, you know, these are the figures that are going to be driving the policy vision for a second white paper for an independence referendum. But I think that's what, you know, a lot of people will look at and go, you're, you're not wrong, Alex, in the sense that they've, they've come out, they haven't bothered yet, uh, you know, actually coming up with a with any answers, and you alluded to it as well, Alistair, they've not got any serious answers that are any different from 2014 on currency, on pensions, on, you know, now the big issue of, you know, whether or not you have a hard border of some sort between England and Scotland. None of these questions are answered. But surely that in and of itself is a massive red flag to anyone who's wavering slightly to go to yes. You'd look at the SNP at the minute and you'd go, they can't answer any of the difficult questions. They're not even going to bother trying before a referendum. They're not serious. Yeah, that's exactly the problem. I, You know, you think, you think about when Brexit, when there were all these ridiculous papers published by the Leave team and the Remains team saying, well, financially, we'll do this and financially, we'll do that. And even, even if it's just a lie, if the S&P put, a, put a, you know, a financial paper together saying, this is how it'll be funded, this money will go from here, but in response to that, we understand the UK government will do this and we'll do that. And there is a clear, coherent financial plan. Then you go, okay, fine, that's a serious plan. And then we can go, well, is it going to work? Is it not? And then you can have the vote. But there's not, there's not that. And, and, and it makes me think about the Keir Starmer thing, about how he won't say anything really about Labour's approach to Scotland um, until the Gordon Brown report. It seems silly just to say the UK government has to do something until you've published your full plan because you don't know it. It's, uh, you know, we're so, the fully costed is thrown around so much in politics. It's like a phrase, oh, it's fully costed, like that matters. But to an extent, it does. And independence is, you know, this won't surprise any of our listeners, not fully costed. And I don't know why you would announce something like this without, or, or an intent to do it, without having looked at the other things first. But, you know, it's 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 sparked a debate, so that's probably the, the point anyway. Yeah, well, I think they've fallen victim to the fact that they don't have that prospectus theory yet, that the, none of this stuff has been laid out for them because, to be fair to them, it wasn't really an announcement in the sense that, I'm not sure, I haven't actually listened to the podcast that this originally came from, but I'm not sure that Ian Blackford really meant to start talking about this. He could probably, I'm assuming, asked a question and then that was asked again on, I think it was an ITV border interview, and this became an issue that got brought up at, First Minister's questions, you know, it's kind of, they've kind of fallen victim in a sense of the fact they don't have those plans in place. They don't have any existing prospectus, um, which is obviously something they're, they're trying to address. And to be fair, there has been a pandemic on. There's a reason why all this stuff has been paused. Um, but it just shows that you, you need to have, you need to have answers to these things and they need to be clear. They can't be constantly clarified. I mean, I was at that briefing after FMQs with the First Minister's spokesman. He did give an answer, but he, he didn't seem entirely convincing on it either. It kind of, it's it's that central issue, isn't it? I mean, yeah, Alex, you mentioned that pensions aren't 
you know, necessarily something at the front of the mind of a lot of you know younger voters. But frankly, I'm only 27. I'm unlikely to be ever get a pension because I'll probably never retire or die before that happens. Um, but it, it's it's one of those things that that central aspect of voters who are maybe between the ages of 45 and 60 more likely to vote slightly more likely to be conservative or pro-unionist you know it's a central issue for them because it's their retirement on the line i think this is one of the reasons the you know split 50 50 down the middle on the constitution hasn't moved in realistically two years you know we had a bit of a movement during the pandemic but in reality nothing has been proposed to no voters that would make them consider that yes is a better alternative to no other than constant you know grievance and and pointing at Westminster as as it being being worse do you think Alistair that you know the SNP are or maybe Nicola Sturgeon and her natural caution is holding back the independence movement because the Alba party have come out of the woods in the last year and gone, you know, the SNP aren't giving any answers to these questions. We have some answers. You know, do you think that that is a a sign that, that the SNP under Nicola Sturgeon are not going to, you know, move fast enough or even at all towards independence and it's all going to fizzle out in five years? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think there's probably two different issues here. I mean, I think her natural caution is probably frustrating for pro-independence activists, especially people like the, you know, Alba Party, um, other people in the SNP who want her to move faster, uh, want answers in these things now. They want you know a referendum as soon as possible. I think if that is your view, then obviously Nicola Sturgeon's natural caution is going to be frustrating for you. For, for the Scottish voter, they want to win over. That natural caution probably isn't that off-putting. They probably want someone to take their time over these things. And I think if she was gung-ho about it, that risks putting people off who they potentially need to win over. So it's, I think they're in a difficult position. And I think the... I mean, it comes back to something we've, we've talked about before in this podcast, that their, their ultimate problem at the moment is that the route to a referendum is completely unclear. It's completely unclear how they're going to even get to that position, let alone having a referendum campaign where these issues become live issues for debate again. I, I really can't see it happening before the end of 2023. And even in the years after that, if the UK government don't play ball, I'm just not sure how they'd ever, how they get around that, essentially. You can, you can take it to a court case, you can push in that way and that will generate headlines it'll generate a lot of excitement but at the end of the day they're still going to be left with a situation where you're not just wanting a referendum you're wanting to create you're wanting that referendum to result in a new independent country and to do that you do need the UK government to come to the negotiating table at some point and that question will just always remain I have spoken to ministers who've been like it's just not going to happen we're just not going to give it like why would there's no like sure but there's no there's no need for them to why would they they're not going to do it um, yeah. which, which, which surprisingly no one really wants to put a name on saying um, there are categorically not ever going to be another referendum but that is essentially how ministers feel I mean the only thing that's going to break that well not the only thing but the main thing that I can think of that would break that deadlock is if public opinion massively changed in which case it would become unsustainable for the UK government to maintain that position if you're talking about you know 60% upwards of people in Scotland wanting a referendum now or wanting independence that becomes something that's impossible to ignore. But when you've got this stasis at the moment where the country is just so completely divided, you know, the, the polls just don't really move anymore. Um, this could just go on indefinitely. 
And I think we've seen, especially over Partygate or just basically all the new, numerous scandals that have hit the UK government, public, they don't really care about public pressure. They kept Dominic Cummings in the face of overwhelming pressure to get rid. I know this is slightly larger than that because, you know, but they basically do what they want. There isn't, they don't really care because they trust that the issue will go away eventually. And it's, it's, it's considerably easier to ignore an issue so far away. It's, it's funny, isn't it, that it seems like what Scottish unionists, and I, 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 I'm using that phrase kind of generously, what one would be a change of government down south, either through you know a change of prime minister or a change of government entirely. I would argue that you know if you have a Labour government in England, you're less likely to see a push for pro-independence and independence referendum going forward. And it, it, it's bizarre that we're in a situation in Scotland where no one up here has an answer. There was a, it, there was a good story today in the record um, with Kenny McCaskill going, any Indie Ref 2 held by Holyrood will just be the equivalent to a consultative ballot. And then asked, you know, you, Kenny McCaskill, former Justice Secretary as um, while at the SNP and now one of the leading figures of Alba, what's your suggestion? And his answer was, oh, well, we'll just have a special convention with all the pro-indie parties and that'll be fine. You're thinking, this is just, this is just complete nonsense. No one in Scotland has an answer to the problem of Westminster ministers, as you say, Alex, sticking their fingers in the ear and going la 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 until something changes and public opinion changes. One of the leading figures in Alba, like being, you know, the most popular rat in a sack, just what, what, what damning, damning thing to be. <laughs> I'm one of the most important people here in this incredibly small pond that no one thinks about anymore. Let's shift on. You mentioned Partygate. Alex, it would be remiss if we didn't mention it. Can you take us through some of the uh, developments over the weekend? I mean, it's mostly been around the Prime Minister's wife. Yeah, so, you know, Guto Harry is now in as the head of communications. Guto Harry um, has criticised Prime Minister for lots of things, I think including affairs, which is quite fun. Uh, the Mail on Sunday had a good roundup of all of his criticism, but, you know, Better to have a friend who calls you out on your behaviour. There aren't many of those in government. Um, and it's quite interesting because the cultural government is now getting a former GB new staffer who resigned because he um, well, he was pushed out because he took the knee on television. So if anything, he might be going to a, a less right-wing organisation than, than the Conservative government than where he, um, than where he came from. Uh, and so now we're seeing a series of briefings against the Prime Minister's wife, uh, Carrie Johnson, some pretty sexist stuff, but it, it's it's quite a difficult thing to balance in that people are using terminology and language around Carrie that is quite unpleasant. And then, you know, immediately the UK government's come out, a spokesman for her has come down, slapped it down and was like, you know, she has no say. She, you know, was a former campaigner or whatever. She's, behaved, you know, it's, it's, these claims are horrible and sexist, which is not really true. But she does have an active say in government. We know that she's lobbied the prime minister. I mean, the... The, the idea that the Afghanistan stuff would have happened without her is hard to believe. We do know that a conversation was made, uh, an approach to Times was made after she complained about a story about Dylan the dog. I know you can't always trust newspapers, but if people reported that and it wasn't true, you can ipso us. You know, if you see something in the Scotsman that you don't think is true, ipso us. And if it's not true, we'll have to withdraw. But that's not what happened. And that's never what happens. Uh, the same with, you know, Corbyn and the um, laying a wreath thing. Lots of uh, anger from him, but they never actually did anything because it was true. Uh, 
So it's a really interesting situation now because Guto is not going to take any of that. He is extremely combative. Uh, happy, to, he's happy to take all the stuff himself, but um, it's quite good on messaging. So I think it's a good get for the UK government, and it has, if nothing else, seen him immediately send tweets to Dominic Cummings and start having go at him. Which is, you know, it's like that Simpsons meme of the two monkeys fighting. You know, I'm just, I'm just happy to watch. What do you think, Alistair? Do you think, do you think the attacks on Carrie Johnson in particular are? fair are they you know a, a relic that should be left in the past something that is is off limits in 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 modern modern day politics so i think there are legitimate questions around stuff like cronyism you know her, there's always been reports about her putting her friends into positions of power in downing street things like that but i mean there's no doubt as alex says that a lot of the a lot of the rhetoric around this is is you know comes across as sexist and i think this idea that i think in those book extracts, you know, this new, uh, I think, Lord Ashcroft book that was um, kind of trailed in some of the weekends, in the Daily Mail over the weekend. I mean, it's all it's all kind of source reporting. It's hard to tell how much of this is, uh, is actually happening, how much of it is true. There's definitely concerns there. But I think ultimately this idea that Boris Johnson is brought down or in some way Carrie Johnson is responsible for some of the troubles he's, he's experiencing now is is crazy in the sense that Boris Johnson is a man in charge. He's the prime minister of the UK. You know, if he's having these kind of problems, they're ultimate, he is ultimately to blame for them. And it's not as if, you know, his character has changed, you know, post his relationship with Carrie Johnson. So I think a lot of this stuff is, it comes across as, uh, as kind of sexist. But then a lot of the parties do involve her. Prime Minister may not have been there. You know, it's there's question marks over her having friends over, which were described as work meetings. But you know, I don't think there's no there's not been any suggestion of what that work was. Just that they were coming over regularly during lockdown. She's if she, she's not the cause of the Prime Minister's problems, but I do think it's fair to say she's a contributing factor. The Summer Garden Party happened, and when Carrie was, and we're told it was a work meeting. But then Carrie was going out there. They want to have it both ways. It's, you know, she's not involved, but then, oh, you know, like I think <laughs> I sort of remember Dominic Raab saying, oh, you know, oh, it'd be really horrible to say that a wife can't go out, see, see her husband and say hello when he's, when he's out there working. Um, you know, she is, she is there. If, if it is a work meeting, she's there. And if it's not, you know, she's, she's socialising during a lockdown. Yeah, I think, to think, I think what I meant is more that if, I, I do agree with you, there are legitimate questions to ask. There's, you know, legitimate issues there, but I think ultimately the, the the buck stops with Boris Johnson. So if these problems do exist, it's it's his, you know, he is the one that is in charge. He's the one that has to deal with this. And I think this, I think what's distasteful about it or what a lot of people are concerned about is the fact that the focus is so much on her when it comes to these things, whereas, you know, he is the man in charge. He's he's the guy running the country. So I, I, I it just seems ridiculous. It's, it, it always... It reminds me of, and it's a popular, you know, reference, but, you know, it's kind of Lady Macbeth figure in the background um, who has ultimate control over their scheming husband. You know, also reminds me of uh, the British House of Cards TV show with Francis Erka and his scheming wife. Like throughout the three seasons, you know, um, Elizabeth Erka is there pulling the strings on Francis's brain and ends up shooting him in the back of the head with a sniper rifle at the end of the third season. Spoilers, but it's been out for I'm 25 years. Uh, <laughs> I've just got to the second series. <laughs> but, no, I don't know. I've heard it now. You'll see what happens. It's it's pretty obvious it was going to happen. There was absolutely... I mean, really, what significance to your metaphor did going that far into it require? We did, like, there was no need. You could have just said, 
the wife the Charlie thinks. We did not need that much detail. And Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. What I was going to say is, and this is the logic, is that there is there is no way that it's fair to suggest that Carrie Johnson is acting in such a way that she is the root of all of Boris Johnson's problems, which is a lot of what the suggestion is, is that like, oh, if Boris Johnson didn't have meddling Carrie in the background, he'd be a much better leader. It's like, well, no, that's complete nonsense. He is his own man. He may have a wife who may, you know, provide and present issues um, through asking him to hire his her friends, allowing her to have friends around during lockdown or be part of work meetings. But at the end of the day, he is prime minister. He is the one who makes these appointments. He is the one who ultimately is responsible for his own conduct, never mind anyone else's. And it's it's something that I just think is such an easy way of releasing him from pressure to go, oh, it's just his wife controlling him. It's madness. And I just don't think it it really has any any real, you know, sense of priority. You know, either the Prime Minister is the Prime Minister and is responsible for his actions and the actions of, you know, his people, or he isn't, and he should go. Both he should go regardless. I don't think anyone really thinks Carrie is the root of all problems. I think people might just think she is one of the problems. And any, any suggestion that it's just her are like mad briefings to the more right-wing papers on a Sunday trying to make the Prime Minister look better and bounce him into minimising her role. It's people campaigning for themselves. No one serious who follows Westminster or like politics thinks that Carrie is the root of all the problems. And I don't think anyone serious would even suggest that. But I do think it's funny... Um, the, the optics of uh, three men discussing whether a woman is the problem or not. Uh, <laughs> now that's a podcast. I, I should state for the record that our colleague Jane was invited, but we had to, <laughs> couldn't come on. Because she's the root of all the Scotsman's problems and she's been banned for talking back. <laughs> we're in the position where we're, we're now, however many weeks on from the initial kind of suggestion that Boris Johnson was on the verge there were drip, drip, drips of resignation, oh, oh, sorry, no confidence letters last week. Alex, do, what's your thoughts? Are we on the verge of a leadership uh, contest or, you know, as is probable, are we still just going to have to wait for when we find out? Endlessly waiting. I. It's funny, over the weekend I saw one report that said, oh, you know, some Tories have they've withdrawn their letters and, you know, they're going to give the Prime Minister a chance and, you know, see who's delivering and ultimately it's on these reforms see what happened and they realised it's not him, it was his advisors. And I saw another report that said more than 100 Tory MPs are really are ready to get rid of Boris. So, I mean, it's all just a mad, insane briefing from people. I think we're quite close. I think his interviews and general behaviour have made it closer and have really annoyed Tory MPs. I don't think it's going to happen this week just because I don't think anything's going to happen this week. I, you know, obviously, keep reading Scotsman, it'll be really interesting, but I don't think on Partygate at least we are expecting, unless unless another scandal drops, you know, unless, I mean, we now know there's a picture of him with a beer. If that picture suddenly emerges and looks really bad, or there's a picture of him, you know, double parked with um, a bottle of port and a bottle of champagne wearing no trousers, game over. Um, and, you know, we can't, at this stage, we can't rule that out. And even if you asked him if he was double parked holding a bottle of port and, trou- and with his trousers down, he would say we have to wait for the Met report. So I don't think anything's going to happen soon just because... They they will wait for the Met report so that they know they've got the best chance of getting rid. Do you think that if the Met report is negative, what do you think would make him resign, if anything? 
Well, I mean, it was in the, it was in the Sunday Times that he's um, already exploring options if it goes south to move to America and make $250,000 a year in the private sector. So money, because he's got like a lot of kids to pay for. And there's been routine briefings about how much he doesn't like the money and how he's not getting paid enough. And the fact that they needed to beg for money for the £30,000, um, the gold wallpaper. So I don't think anything's, you know, he never thinks he's done anything wrong. This is a man who he, well, he will not resign. He does not, he just does not care um, and fundamentally believes he's right. I mean, you know, we had that apology for the parties and then he went into the tea room and down in uh, Westminster and was telling Tory MPs it was a Labour media coup, um, despite the fact that most of the revelations came from the Telegraph and ITV. I would love to say, you know, this is it. This is where the Prime Minister draws a line. I think even if he gets the charge, even if he gets a fixed penalty notice, you no, know, they said they, they might not confirm he gets. I think they will ride that out and say he didn't know. I already saw one uh, sympathetic lobby journalist tweeting that, well, you know, if the fact that an official photographer took photos of him with a beer suggests that they thought it was in the rules. Like, grow up. No, they didn't. They just thought that they could get away with it and they wanted to have a nice picture for their Instagram, which, you know, it's probably the only time Boris Johnson I've ever been able to relate to him. Yeah, it's uh, nothing will make him go. Even the fixed £10 notice won't be enough, but that will be enough for Tory MPs to go, you're a criminal, you're bad, get rid. Well, I'm intrigued to, to know what you at home think about uh, Boris Johnson and when he's resigned. So if you've got any thoughts, do give us a tweet at the Scotsman. Feel free to use the hashtag TheSteamy. You can also get in touch with any of us on Twitter as well. But that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very, very much for listening. And thank you, Alice. Thank you, Alex, for being with us. The Steaming, a laudable production for The Scotsman.